I worked night shift for 14 straight years. Six days on, three days off. 9.30 p.m. roll call, out the door and homeward bound at 6 a.m. The work was exciting and sleep was never to be found, but the days off were interesting. When you're on night shift schedules, what do you do with your days off? Do you try and stay up all day the first day off so you can switch to a normal schedule for the next two days before going right back into the work week? Or do you stay on the same vampire schedule and sleep all day? I went the vampire route, which meant I would often find myself wide awake at 3 a.m. with nothing to do. I watched a lot of movies, and I'm betting you have too. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. I thought we would have a little bit of fun this episode and break down the five best cop movies for you night owls. Back in the day, you had to buy these on VHS. Yes, I'm that old. Or DVD. But today, with streaming services, you can probably find these without too much difficulty. Before we get into the list, here are a few caveats. First, these are based on my personal opinion. Just because I'm right doesn't mean some of you out there can't be wrong. I'm also not a professional reviewer, so the things I'm looking for might be very different from what you will find on any Rotten Tomatoes review. Finally, we have to recognize that we are reviewing Hollywood movies. Hollywood. You know, that place that doesn't particularly like cops, and while it has made billions off of our profession, it never gets it right. Even in some of these movies I'm going to talk about, they don't get it right. These just happen to be the ones that they get more right than others. And as far as political beliefs go, well, let's just say if I based my television viewing habits on political beliefs, I would start by throwing the TV out the window. So watch for fun and enjoyment. Now, let's start with number five. I'm not dumb enough to give you my number one yet. I learned a little something about suspense watching all those late night movies. So we're going to count down. Here is number five. Larry, Larry, if we make an effort today, we might be able to save August. August? For Christ's sake, tomorrow's the 4th of July, and we will be open for business. It's going to be one of the best summers we've ever had. Now, if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever you have to to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. That one threw you for a loop. I know you weren't expecting Jaws on this list, but it really is a great cop movie. Jaws, the 1975 Steven Spielberg movie, was based on a 1974 Peter Benchley novel. The film focuses on a man-eating great white shark that attacks swimmers and residents in a summer beach resort town. I remember first seeing this film as a kid, and afterwards, I didn't want anything to do with the water. The movie terrified me, and it terrified audiences all over the world. It is listed as number 56 on the AFI Top 100 Films. I'm not going to talk about the acting, which is phenomenal, or the screenwriting, which is sharp, or the cinematography, which is mind-blowing. Nope. I am going to talk about what makes this one of the best cop movies. It's the interaction between our main character, Chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, and the city administration. Early in the film, Chief Brody wants to close the beaches due to the strong possibility that a shark attack has claimed the life of a young swimmer. In walks Mayor Larry Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton. The more I watch Jaws, the more I love Murray Hamilton's portrayal of the mayor. I've worked for guys just like that in my career. Mayor Vaughn convinces the coroner through a little subtle political strong-arming to declare the swimmer's death a boating accident. 
Well, this is not a boat accident. This sets the stage for the rest of the film, with our hero, Chief Brody, fighting the local politician, Mayor Vaughn, to do the right thing. The arguments between the two characters feel real, and you can see how hard the mayor is trying to make normal happen. For those of you out there at the higher levels of your agency, you've been here before. These types of conversations go on all the time. The department trying to take action to help the community, and the politicians have different agendas. And although you can almost sympathize with Mayor Vaughn, after all, if the beaches are closed, the town might die. It's a difficult balance. Politics, that's what makes this number five on my list. Number four. Hi, yellow. Woo! What you got there? Argy, thought you might need a little warm-up. Thanks a bunch. So what's the deal now? Gary says triple homicide? Yeah, it looks pretty bad. Two of them are over here. Where is everybody? Well, it's cold, Margie. Watch your step, Margie. Fargo, 1996. A very dark comedy from Joel and Ethan Cohn. This crime film revolves around Jerry Lundergaard, played to perfection by William H. Macy, who is desperate for money. He concocts a plan to have his wife kidnapped so he can get the money he needs from his father-in-law. Come for the Coen Brothers' fantastic script. Stay for Chief Marge Gunderson. It's over 30 minutes into the movie before Marge, played by Frances McDormand, enters the film. But she steals the movie at every turn. What's so special about Marge and why is this number four on my list? It's because Marge is good. She is a great character, a wonderful human being, and a perfect law enforcement role model. Something we don't see in movies today. By 1996, Hollywood had moved firmly into the bad cop camp, where police were everything but good. The flawed characters that portrayed police in the big screen were philanderers, addicts, misogynists. They had anger issues, and they couldn't maintain positive relationships. And, of course, my favorite, breaking the law to enforce the law. In 2000, Fargo was listed as number 93 on the AFI Top 100 Movies list. Since then, it's fallen off, probably because Hollywood hates good cops. But in Fargo, the cops are good. They do good work. They are genuinely good people, and Marge Gunderson leads the way. We first meet Marge when her phone rings in the very early morning. I love the conversation. It reminds me of so many calls I received over my career. Her husband immediately says that he'll make her some eggs. Uh, that's right, she's happily married. That's different for most cops in the movies. After getting dressed and eating, she heads out for her patrol car in the North Dakota winter. Needs a jump. I love everything about Marge. Her uniforms, her shoulder holster, the way she works, how she talks to people, and how she gets the job done. And did I mention she's seven months pregnant? Great role model. That's what makes this one number four on the list. Number three. Please, Will. If you just tell me what this is all about. I sent a man up five years ago for murder. He was supposed to hang. But up north, they commuted it to life. Now he's free. I don't know how. Anyway, it looks like he's coming back. I still don't understand. He's a... Well, he was always wild, kind of crazy. He'll, he'll probably make trouble. But that's no concern of yours, not anymore. I'm the one who sent him up. Well, that was part of your job. That's finished now. We've got a new marshal. Won't be here till tomorrow. Seems to me I've got to stay. Anyway, I'm the same man with or without this. High Noon, 1952. 
Many would call this a Western, and it is, but the overlying political themes of the film make it feel like it could have been made in 2022, not 1952. High Noon is number 27 on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list. The film is made in real time and centers around Marshall Will Kane, played by Gary Cooper, who just got married and is leaving his police job when he receives notification that a man he put away to hang for murder is out of prison and will be arriving on the noon stage. At first, Kane leaves town with his new bride, but he quickly changes his mind. He must go back. He has trouble putting his finger on why, but he knows he can't leave. Most of the film centers around him trying to get help to face the four gunmen who are planning to kill him at noon, and this is what makes this a great cop film. From our hero's perspective, it really is a tale of courage. Not the fake Hollywood courage, but true moral fortitude. Marshall Kane is afraid, and he wants to run, but he knows he can't, not just for himself, but for the town. Courage isn't the absence of fear. On the contrary, it is being afraid and doing what needs to be done anyway. And throughout the movie, Marshall Kane faces his fears. The fear of losing his wife, the fear of losing his life, and the fear of losing his own identity. Gary Cooper pulls this off spectacularly. For me, it's the townsfolk and their response to the coming threat that makes this film prescient. We see many citizens talking about how they wouldn't miss the showdown at noon for anything. Clearly, they see it as entertainment and care little for the marshal or for the outcomes. The clerk at the local hotel, he doesn't hold back, making it clear that he and many of the others in town resent Marshal Kane. He's too good at his job. It's not fun in town anymore, and they aren't making as much money with law and order in place. Finally, Marshall Kane ends up at the local church asking for help, and the conversations ring out like a community board meeting in every town in America in 2022. It's not our problem. It's between the marshal and the bad guys. The marshal caused the problem, and he should be the one to fix it. And finally, my favorite scene of the movie, where a town leader starts off by extolling the virtues of the marshal, only to end with the sentiment that if the police weren't in town, there wouldn't be any problems at all. Give the community to the criminals, and all will be well. It's not like we haven't seen just that happen in places like Seattle and Portland. This film isn't a cop movie because of what Marshall Kane does. No, it's a cop movie because of how the citizens react and the final scene could have been filmed yesterday as Gary Cooper throws his badge in the dirt and rides off. And that's why this is number three on the list. Number two. All right, Popeye's here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the wall. Come on, move. Move. Come on, sweetheart, move. Come on, move. Face the window. Move. Face the wall. Turn around there. Turn around. Move. Come on, move! Hands out of your pockets. Turn around. Turn around. Come on, you heart. Come on. Turn around. Come on. Come on. Turn around. Get on the wall. Get on the wall. Turn around. Come on. Turn around. Hey. You drop that. Pick it up. Hands up. Pick it up. Come on, move. What are you looking at? All right, bring it here. Get your hands out of your pockets. What's my name? Doyle. What? Mr. Doyle. Come here. The French Connection is a 1971 crime thriller directed by William Friedkin and is one of the most realistic police movies ever filmed. The French Connection tells the story of Detective Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, and his partner, Detective Buddy Russo, played by Roy Scheider, who's making his second appearance on my list. And what can I say? I love Roy Scheider. These two detectives uncover a massive heroin smuggling operation from France to New York City. The film is listed at number 93 on the AFI Top 100 Films. 
The movie is based on the 1969 book of the same name that tells the real-life story of detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso as they investigated a major heroin smuggling scheme to America in the 1960s. Their investigation culminated in the seizure of 246 pounds of heroin smuggled into New York City in a Citroen DS. You have to pay attention with this film. There isn't a ton of dialogue as director William Friedkin lets the camera do most of the talking. But if you sit down and watch, you're going to see what it is like to conduct a drug investigation. The film is filled with stakeouts and tales and snitches. It is famous for a scene where Popeye Doyle chases after an elevated train in a car, and this car chase scene is one of the best ever filmed. Popeye Doyle isn't the greatest cop character out there. As a matter of fact, you're going to kind of hate him. He's rough, mean, and excessive in a way that wouldn't be tolerated in today's policing, but in New York City in the 1960s, his portrayal is pretty spot on. There is a scene in the film where the detectives impound a car and start stripping it down looking for heroin. This is an incredible scene, and I remember a very similar incident where my detectives and I stopped a known drug trafficker on his way back to my city, but upon searching the car, we couldn't find the stash. Hours later, after taking the cardio garage and starting to completely strip it down, we found the hidden compartment under the dash. Every time I see this film, I remember that night vividly. This film makes you feel like you're right in the middle of the investigation from start to finish. Even the conclusion comes off feeling real. And that's why this is number two on my list. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. Before we get to number one, I'm going to throw in an honorable mention here. Not because it's a great cop movie, but because I think it's a great movie for cops to watch. You want to know why I pulled you over? Littering. Oh, officer, that, that's not ours. Candy bars. Littering and? Littering and? Uh, and, uh, Littering and? and? Littering and? Uh, Littering and? Littering and smoking the reefer. Oh. Now to teach you boys a lesson, Officer Rabbit and I are going to stand here while you three smoke the whole bag. Please no. Super Troopers, a 2001 comedy filmed by the Broken Lizard Comedy Troupe. This is the film you put in, turn your brain off, kick back, and relax. I remember going to see this on opening day, and there were only about 40 people in the theater. Every one of them were cops. There's one particular scene in the film where two of the officers climb into the backseat of the patrol car for some unauthorized private time, and they close both of the back doors on the squad car. The entire theater groaned. Because we all know, once you get in there, you can't get out. Super Troopers doesn't deserve to be on the top five list, but you should check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, you'll smile for days. And just in case you were wondering, it's not on the AFI Top 100 list. And now, number one. Well, now, you are, the, you are the number one homicide expert. That's right. Boy, I bet you get to look at a lot of dead bodies, don't you? Lots. Well... Well, what? Well, I, no, I just thought maybe, uh, maybe you wouldn't mind taking a look at this one. No, thanks. Well, why not, expert? Because I've got a train to catch. 
Oh, wait a minute. That train don't leave to 12 o'clock noon. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? Because I'm not an expert. Officer. In the Heat of the Night, 1967. This is one of the finest cop movies ever filmed. Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, is a Philadelphia homicide detective who gets caught up in a murder investigation in a small town in Mississippi. The film focuses on the racial issues of the South and the challenges that the black northern detective must deal with. It also doesn't shy away from Detective Tibbs' own prejudices, which really makes the film feel real. It would have been easy to portray the Sparta police chief, Bill Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger, as a bigot and racist. But instead... He's a nuanced character, clearly from the South and a product of his upbringing, but not a blatant racist. At one point in the film, he almost begs Detective Tibbs to help him investigate the case. Sidney Poitier gets the credit for this film, and rightly so. He is amazing on every level, but don't sleep on Rod Steiger's performance. It is just as good. As a matter of fact, the absolute best parts of this film are when the two of them are squaring off. It's riveting. What makes this film number one on my list is that it highlights training and experience through the lens of a small backwards town. The locals don't have the necessary training and experience to investigate the case. Many of the investigative decisions made are based on assumptions and fallacies that Detective Tibbs is able to point out. Without Detective Tibbs, the wrong person would have been arrested, charged, and likely convicted based on poor police work. While the conflict in the film is set up to be one of racial biases, I really see this as a conflict between big city and little town, between professionals and amateurs, between experience and inexperience, and between training and the lack thereof. There are so many wonderful scenes in this film, from the opening credits showing the officer patrolling a small town, to the relationship that develops between Detective Tibbs and Chief Gillespie. Lying underneath all of this drama is a nice little murder mystery that you get to see play out. If I turn on the TV and happen to see this movie playing, I stop everything and watch it. You should too. This is my number one cop film. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 